I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Hello, I'm Mitchell Kaplan, and I'm very excited to be recording my podcast, The Literary Life from the Miami Book Fair. This is our 35th anniversary, and we're going to have a very special time together as we'll be talking to some of the most interesting, important, and timely authors writing today. Writers like Tina Brown, Tiare Jones, Doris Kearns Goodwin, and Pete Souza. So join me for this special edition of The Literary Life, recorded at this year's Miami Book Fair. It's my pleasure to welcome Tiari Jones to The Literary Life. Her striking works include Leaving Atlanta, The Untelling, Silver Sparrow, and her newest novel, An American Marriage. That's what brings her to the Miami Book Fair, where she'll be speaking tonight, helping us celebrate our 35th anniversary. The wonderful Edwidge Danticott says about an American marriage, Tyree Jones's American Marriage is a stunning epic love story filled with breathtaking twists and turns while bursting with realized and unrealized dreams. Skillfully crafted and beautifully written, American Marriage is an exquisite, timely, and powerful novel that feels both urgent and indispensable. Michael Shabon writes, Tiari Jones is blessed with vision to see through to the surprising and devastating truths at the heart of ordinary lives, strength to wrest those truths free, and a gift of language to lay it all out, compelling and clear. That has been true from her very first book. But with an American marriage, that vision, that strength, and that truth-telling voice have found a new level of artistry and power. And of course, by now, everyone out there knows that American Marriage was chosen by Oprah Winfrey as an Oprah pick. And this is what Oprah says about an American marriage. It's among Tiari's many gifts that she can touch us soul to soul with her words. 
In addition to her fiction, Tiara has become one of the most insightful and timely essayists that we have. She never fails to take me along with her down a road I haven't traveled before, illuminating things I might not have thought about. But during this political season, she's been laser-like in explaining and exploring ideas and points of view that I might be thinking, but just can never articulate as well as she can. I hope we'll be able to touch on all of this during our conversation. And Tari, I really want to welcome you to The Literary Life and congratulate you on all your success. Tiari, it's wonderful to have you with us. Thanks for inviting me. But, you know, one of the other things that is really striking to me that is that in addition to your fiction, uh, you've become, for me, one of the most insightful and timely essayists that we have. She never fails to take me, and you never fail to take me along, down a road I haven't traveled before, illuminating things I might not have thought about. But during this particular political season that we just had, your voice was particularly poignant. I followed your tweets. I loved everything that you said. Um, But I hope we can get to some of that stuff later on. But let's start with the novel. Okay. Why don't you give me a little bit of the background of the novel and how it came to be? Well, An American Marriage is a story of a young couple separated by the husband's incarceration. I took the long way to the story. For my fourth novel, I decided that I wanted to try to engage the issues of the day. And I wanted to write about incarceration. And I wrote a grant to go to the Radcliffe Institute to do research. And I did all this research and I learned a lot. I was horrified by what I've learned about the way incarcerated people are treated in the U.S. But I didn't have a novel because, you know, when you write a novel, you're supposed to write about people and their problems, not problems and their people. So I had a problem, but no people. And I didn't know where I was going to get people from. So... I was stressed out. Just think the Harvard people, they want me to give a presentation of my work. I've been working, but I don't have work. So I went home to Atlanta to visit my mother. And while I was there, I overheard a young couple arguing in the mall. I heard the woman say, clear as a bell. She said, Roy, you know you wouldn't have waited on me for seven years. And I was intrigued. And I thought she was probably right, honestly. I mean, I didn't know him, but I thought she was probably right. But then he turned and he said... I don't know what you're talking about. This wouldn't have happened to you in the first place. And for me, I know I have a novel when I have two characters who are both right, yet they disagree. That's where you have moral ambiguity. The heart of every good novel is that moral ambiguity. And when I was trying to write about, directly about wrongful incarceration, I had no moral ambiguity. They call it wrongful incarceration because... It's wrong. (laughs) Ta-da! So I had to find a place where I wasn't sure what was right and wrong so that I could write a novel to challenge myself to find an answer. Yeah, and and you certainly did. Um, What is it when you were doing that research? What always struck me, because you write about it in the book so vividly, what is it that you learned about mass uh, incarceration? You know, when I was doing the research, the things that I learned that were most helpful were actually not mass incarceration questions, but individual things. There is a really excellent oral history collection by McSweeney's called um, Surviving Justice, where people who've been wrongfully incarcerated talk about their experience. And through those individual details, it's how I found out about what I call the minutia of deprivation. Like one man speaks just 
for pages and pages about the desire for an onion, which is such a mundane thing, but fresh fruits and vegetables are just currency in prison. And that was just a symbol to me of the deprivation. Um, or even writing letters um, to people in prison. Nikki Giovanni once told me, whenever you get a letter from a prisoner, write him back because you don't understand the sacrifices he made to get the paper, the envelope, the pencil, the stamp. And so just the little things I felt made that experience come through in the novel without having the reader experience vicariously the day-to-day brutality of prison. With these small details, we felt the emotional impact. And what's interesting about what you're talking about is it's not you had a double whammy with your character because not only was he incarcerated brutally, but he was also wrongly incarcerated, which is something else. I mean, did you go into the Innocence Project and start looking to some of the things like Just Mercy that was written and some of those folks? You know, what was interesting to me about wrongful incarceration versus what rightful incarceration is that I don't I think that the more you read about incarceration, these wrongful, not wrongful becomes irrelevant. And even the the voices, the oral histories of the men who have been wrongfully incarcerated, they ve- they don't dwell much on that part of it. They talk more about the, the prison, prison system, the prison system, the um, barely paid labor. Have you read that the wildfires in California are being are being fought by prisoners. Some of them, they call them youthful offenders, but you and I call them children. And they are unable to apply for jobs as firefighters when they're released, despite the fact that they're, they you have know. all that experience. Yeah, and they're saving our bacon right now. Yet, because they are of this status of incarcerated person. So this is the kind of stuff I learned, but very little of it actually made it directly into the novel. When you do a lot of research, you have to really restrain yourself because you have these impulses where you want the characters to look at the camera and say, did you know? It's really hard to like pull back and you know it, but you don't have to directly tell it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And I think what a lot of that extra research where it found itself was in some of the essays that you began to write. And I think it's infused in your own political sensibility as well, I imagine. Well, you know, my father has been harassing me to write essays. He's a political scientist, and Daddy thinks that the nonfiction is where the real thinking is. And I've always resisted him because I believe in fiction, and I believe that we can make serious societal statements in fiction. And daddy always says, oh, you need to write essays, baby. I'm just like, no, daddy, you can't make me write an essay. But in these harrowing political moments that we're in, I have found myself where I I had to write essays because that was where I felt I could make the most impact fastest. And I just felt like the moment is so urgent that we need all hands on deck and everyone needs to use whatever skills they have. And so I've been writing essays lately, but it's not my Thing. Yeah, but you're so good at it. I, do you work for my dad? Daddy, are you here? I could. In fact, tell me about your parents, because I, I read a little bit about them through you, and you call them political idealists, which is really, really interesting. Yes, I, you so, know. And, and you lived abroad for a while with them. They took you to Nigeria, I, I think. I grew up, and I was born in 1970, right. so I grew up in Atlanta, hometown of Martin Luther King who was killed in 68. So I feel that for my generation, that we were born the children who were thought to reap the rewards of all the sacrifices of the 
previous generation. You know, my name is from East Africa, Tayari. It means she is prepared. And yeah, we grew up in a political household. Like I wrote in Time Magazine, when I was a little kid, I was obsessed with apartheid. I was very concerned because of the children of Soweto. And I was a child and I identify with them. And I thought everyone should be, you know, we boycotted Coke. Yeah, you got to tell the story about the Gulf gas station story. Gulf gas was one of the major supporters of apartheid. And there was a Gulf gas station near my house when I was a kid. And this little girl that I so admired invited me to the zoo, me. And so I had on my little zoo outfit. I would, to this day, when I'm all dressed up, I say, I've got on my zoo clothes. So I had on my zoo clothes and the mother came and picked us up and I put on my seatbelt and we went and she pulled into a Gulf gas station. And I said, excuse me, ma'am, we don't use Gulf gas because Gulf gas supports apartheid and they kill children. And this woman said, well, Gulf gas is 60 cents a gallon. I said, yes, ma'am, but they support apartheid and they kill children. And she was just, I did not enjoy being a child because as a child, I felt like people were not listening to me. I knew that I was telling her something that was true. And she just blew me off because I was like six. And she started filling the gas tank and I saw the, you know, the numbers. This is before digital. I saw the numbers flipping over. And I thought there was a direct pipeline to those numbers flipping over to children being in danger. And I knew that morally I could not ride in her car zoo clothes or no zoo clothes. And I started crying. I had to get out the car and she let me out. And I sat down on the on the asphalt, getting my zoo clothes all dirty. And I did not go to the zoo. And that little girl never talked to me again. <laughs> and I think that was the first time I felt like but I tell, had made tell a... tell about what your dad's reaction was. He said, I am proud of you, Buttercup. He calls me Buttercup. I am proud of you, Buttercup. And he took me for an ice cream. But I couldn't even eat the ice cream. I was so upset because I was aware that the cost of my ideals, I knew I wasn't going to be invited back to the zoo. I felt like I had sacrificed everything because I wasn't going to go to the zoo. But, you know, that that what that story and what you t- talk about is in that essay, there's nothing virtuous about finding common ground, right? Which Which I found to be brilliant because... It's, it's things that were sort of rattling around in my own mind, but you really brought it to a head and explained it in a way that was so accessible. It allowed me to explain it to a large extent. I feel like when we're children, we know about right and wrong. Like, I knew that it was wrong to support Gulf Gas, which supported apartheid. I just knew it as a child, and I wasn't interested in half supporting it. I had to get out of the car. But once I got older and you start having all this pressure to to seem reasonable, et cetera. It causes you to indulge things that should not be indulged. There are some things that are completely wrong. And we, like we were saying, wrongful incarceration is completely wrong. And when, and you have to respond to things that are wrong in a strident way. I feel like we've made it like it's a bad thing to be strident or to be passionate about what you believe and that some murky middle zone is a mature place. But I think it really depends on what it is that we are debating. Most definitely. And you you end the essay by saying, and something I believe in, compromise is not valuable in its own right, and justice seldom dwells in the middle. How right you are on that. I feel that when we look back on these times, we will not be proud of our, I said, the fetishization of the middle. I, I agree with you. You know, it drives me crazy often to see... Uh, to, television or radio or newspaper stories in which they feel like they have to be balanced, 
when there really is there really is a right and a wrong and there is no other side sometimes yeah sometimes there is no other side and that and i also think that it's very difficult and painful for us as a society to accept that there are people we know and interact with that are on the side of something that is so wrong. We think, certainly we're misunderstanding. Certainly this can't be the world we live in. Maybe we should just listen more. Maybe it isn't what it looks like, but you know. Yeah. Yeah, it's walking like a duck. <laughs> it certainly is. You know, one of the, one I thought one of the strongest parts of the novel were those brilliant letters that, that you wrote. It becomes very much an epistolary uh, form at that point. Uh, what is it your, with your fascination for epistolary novels and why letters and that sort of thing? Well, I write letters. I wrote a letter this morning. I write a letter. To, I write a letter to my mama every Sunday. I write letters. I enjoy um, keeping in touch in that way and also collecting my thoughts on paper. Hardly anyone writes me back, I would like to add. You know, we share a love of typewriters. You have typewriters? Oh, I have about 15 typewriters at home. And I know that you, re- you really? write your books on typewriters. Do you have an Olivetti Valentine? I do. Red. So, okay. <laughs> Are we gonna? Is this, we gonna do a back and forth? I, I kind of want to, but I'll re- I know I've other got people. A, I've got every Hermes that exists. Here's the one that I want. Which? Have you heard of the the mysterious Smith Corona ghost? Yes, I have heard of it. Did you? I do not have it though. No one has it. No one can really confirm that the Smith Corona ghost ever existed. I bought something on the internet that was rumored to be a ghost. And it wasn't? I bought it. I took it to the typewriter doctor, and he said, that is no ghost. Wow. And he turned it over, and on the bottom was his signature. He said he marked it so that if he ever saw it again. He would know. He would know it. That He said that he my has seen God. that machine three times. Wow. I'm, some of my favorite typewriters are Smith Corona. You know, Smith Corona is a good workhorse a of good, a typewriter. It's a typewriter. Um, that's great. We can go on and on like that. Have you been to the one near, uh, uh, in the Flatiron Building, right across the street? Gramercy Typewriter. Gramercy Typewriter. Yes, but great the guys. best typewriter doctor in the world Rare. is outside of Cambridge, Massachusetts. It's called Cambridge Typewriters. I love his shop because, for one, he inspired, I was feeling down when I first met this typewriter doctor, and I called him and no one answered, and I thought, oh, poor typewriter doctor. I thought he was gonna be like the Maytag repair man. You know, no one comes in. But turned out he was like on vacation in the Bahamas. <laughs> but I came back and he, um, his shop is kind of a mess. It's, it's like a lot of typewriters stacked up, but he doesn't run his shop like a museum. He just thinks that everyone loves typewriters. And if you're a writer, there's always this, people are always telling you, oh, the novel is done. No one, no one reads novels anymore. You know, a Kindle is going to come drown you in the bathtub. If anyone has the right to feel like that about their line of work, typewriter. it's a typewriter doctor, but he just doesn't. Well, you know, I love everything. Everything analog really appeals to me in so many different ways. And that's why typewriters do as I well. I have a rotary phone. I'm not gonna. We're not gonna go there because I've got ten, <laughs> and I've got them. I've got Russian mid-century rotary phones. I just have the one from the cool. '70s, and I like it because if I get mad and I want to hang up on somebody, it is satisfying to slam, slam that. that down. Yeah, is you, it a? You have a princess or is it a regular? Regular. Regular. I like. Rotary. I want a princess though. If you have one, I'll take it. All right. But with that rotary, you can slam it down, and you have hung up on somebody. With the cell phone, you just push that button. They might think you got disconnected, but if you slam that phone down, they know you mean business. They certainly do, and we do mean business, and we're going to 
come right back with Harry Jones. This is The Literary Life, and I'm talking to Tiari Jones. And, you know, we talked a lot about a lot of different things. But one of the things that intrigues me is your whole publishing career, too. You know, I'm a bookseller, so publishing means, you know, I'm, I'm a fascinated by publishing. So the question is, how did you find Algonquin? It's a Because I find them to be one of the greatest publishers around. Well, you know, they published my, I came to them in my third book. I published my first two books with, um, well, when I signed with them, they were Warner, then they got sold and they became Hachette and Grand Central. And after my first two books, they didn't want my third book um, because BookScan had come into play. The dreaded BookScan. You know, before BookScan, you used to could kind of act successful (laughs) and people would think you're successful. But with BookScan, they know exactly how many books you've sold. So I was homeless as a writer and I was really devastated because I thought, I knew I wasn't a bestseller. I had noticed that I was not rich. You know, this, you know, had not missed me, but I felt proud of my work that I had done everything I could. My career was modest. People often don't believe me when I tell them this, but An American Marriage is my first novel to have been reviewed by the Times. No, really? Yeah, no, oh, I God. was kind of on the fringes. I was a hardworking person, but in many ways, I was on the fringes. I do think that things have really changed as far as um, people of color in publishing. But when I was started writing in 2000... There was not a place of yes, diversity. Yes, basically choose maybe one or two writers of color of the moment, and no one else had a chance. So, But I was doing my work. It felt like it meant something. It was connecting with the readers, but I wasn't making any money, so the publisher cut me loose, and they took my first two books out of print. And this story has a happy ending because when I was at the Key West Literary Seminars, um, I had a chance encounter. A woman took me by the hand and put my hand in the hand of Elizabeth Charlotte, the publisher of Algonquin. And I was embarrassed because I thought that they would put my name in the book scan and realize that I wasn't a moneymaker. And I could not bear to hear that again because I was doing the best work I could do. And Elizabeth Charlotte asked me, oh, how do you know Judy? And I said, I don't know Judy. And she said, no, Judy Bloom. And that was, Judy Bloom vouched for me and helped me break through, you know, being kind of a pariah because of my book scan. And Algonquin kind of really believed in my novel, Silver Sparrow. And, you know, we worked to get my books out there and and make my career on more solid ground. And, you know, Judy's, Judy's our partner with a bookshop. She's a bookseller I now. No, She's got books and books in Key West. And she's on the floor all the time working, which is pretty wild. I mean, she is an amazing person. She I read is. her books. And I also want to praise her books. I do think that a lot of times when it comes to women writers, we talk about what they've done for us and we forget to talk about their work. We kind of paint them as helpers and friendly and fairy godmothers. But... You know, when I was a kid, I read Judy Bloom's book like it was a religion. And to for me to then meet her, I would have been satisfied only to meet her, not, even if she hadn't, you know, saved the day for me, just to tell her how much her work meant to me and how much it, the role it played in forming me as a writer. Yeah, no, and, and, and young kids like you who are now adults can go down there and meet her, believe it or not. She's, she's that accessible. Tell me about some other writers that you feel the same way about. Well, I don't know if you know that I'm completely obsessed with Toni Morrison. Do you know this about I me? I didn't know that about you. I'm the person who started calling her Tomo on Twitter, hashtag Tomo. Um, that's her celebrity name, I think. 
I read Toni Morrison when I was in college, and I was really impressed with the way that she takes ordinary people and writes about them in such a way that they seem mythological. Like that is what it means to put an experience into the canon. And so I just, I read her work and I like that her work is simultaneously dense yet weirdly accessible because the people she writes about are so everyday, even though she writes about them and in an elevated fashion. It, I get really mad when people say they haven't read her. I take it very personally, like very. As you should, as you should. Because as the good I news, do. The good news is she's being read all across age groups and all over the place. As a bookseller, I know. Well, I will tell you, on my desk, I have next to my typewriter, I have a little baby food jar, and in the jar is some dirt from her hometown. Is that right? Yes, I shake it like a little Morocco to get it. Have you, have you had a chance to meet her and tell her all this? I, have, I did not tell her about the dirt. I think she might, you know, <laughs> she might get the wrong idea. She might think I'm dangerous. I'm not, I'm not, ma'am. I'm really nice. But... It just, and sometimes with my students, if they're in a really, really difficult position, I will give them a pinch of the dirt. She's, I talk about your students. One of the things that you're passionate about is your teaching as well. Uh, where are you now? And I know that you're, you've been teaching writing for many years. Yeah, and I've been teaching writing. Are you writing. at Emory now still? I've just started at Emory. Okay. I've, I've just started. I'm on sabbatical now, but I'll teach my first class in January. I'm so excited to go home to Atlanta because, you know what, I'm a Southern writer and all my books are set in Atlanta, but I've noticed with each book, the characters are spending more and more time indoors because I'm feeling like I'm losing my grip. I feel like I know the culture of the city, but I'm losing my grip on the landscape. So I'm, I'm eager so to move back, back home. So going back will give you that sense again. And you know what? I'm a Southern writer and I moved to New York to be near publishing, to kind of give myself a shot. But I've decided that it's dangerous if all the writers are living within six square blocks of one another. <laughs> it's causing a kind of homogenization of our American literary tradition. So I'm, I'm ready to go home. I think that's why Gary Steingart lives in Manhattan and not Brooklyn. That's very that radical. Very, it's a very <laughs> radical move. But your first book, which is about, and you live through, the uh, the mass killing of children in Atlanta. Uh, do you remember the leaving Atlanta? Leaving yeah, two Atlanta. children, twenty eight children were murdered, right. and two of them were students at my elementary school. Is that right? And so I wanted to write a novel not about the case. I'm not a true crime writer. I wanted to write about what it was like culturally, how that affected the coming of age of a generation. Well, it had to be really scary. It had to be. It was, or a, maybe not. Maybe well, because you're a kid and you don't think in those terms. Well, here's one thing that adults, our parents were devastated by the murders in a way that we weren't because it seemed like a moment of post-civil rights disillusionment because adults understand things historically. Children are symbolic to adults. Children are individuals to each other. So there isn't a sense of everything we've worked for has been lost with children. But it was really for me, I look at it as a when I came to understand something of the world, because most of the, we remember the children who were murdered as being black and they were, but also they were poor and working class. And that is when class, I came to understand the difference in the protection that class gives you. Well, let's, let's, we can skip forward to an American marriage because the one thing you do do is you present so many different uh, kinds of people and so many voices. You're so you're, you're you're so attuned to voices, and I know we talked a little bit before we went on air about your sense of mimicry and the ability to be a mimic, and and how that informs your writing in some way. Talk a little bit about that if you can. 
I think dialogue is my strong suit in writing, and it's because I listen to people talk, and I can mimic, I can verbally mimic the way people talk. And when I write, I try to recreate that. I think that writing dialogue and mimicry are kind of the same skill. And also, it's imp- I'm very intrigued by the way people betray little things about their background and how they speak. And so I can use dialogue to create class differences between characters who you may look at them and they may seem the same, but I can show something different about the way they grew up through the way that they use language. And I just, I just love it. I just love having a book populated with a lot of people. I, I'm a person when I'm writing a novel, I don't do any, I don't work on other projects. I'm totally artistically monogamous. And I like to have my world peopled with characters that I'm content to spend five or six years with. And American Marriage took me six years to write. Right. And and you clearly do it so beautifully. And I can't thank you enough for being on The Literary Life. This has been incredibly enjoyable. And to meet somebody else with a passion for typewriters, what could be bad about that? I am delighted. And I can't wait to see your collection. <laughs> you show me yours, I'll show you mine. <laughs> <laughs> Deal. I hope you like what you heard and that you'll please share your review on Apple Podcasts. And also give me your feedback at Books and Books on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to my weekly conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and Revolver.com. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. Thanks for joining The Literary Life.